From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News. Today, U.S. FinTech NovaCredit expands into Europe, Apple's plan to win the payments war, and the microchip implants that let you pay with your hand. Hmm. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as 10 just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A dot com forward slash insider. Welcome to episode 620 of Fintech Insider. My name is Guerra, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my lovely 11FS colleague, Kate Moody, our global strategy director of customer experience. Kate, what's up? I like, we haven't been on a pod in a very long time. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, how are you doing, Kate? I'm good. I'm good. I've been skiving off having a baby. But yeah, good Good to be back. Great to be back in the studio. Yeah, very exciting. Back to being back in the world of Fintech. Looking forward to chatting about the news. Nice. And can you remind our listeners about your role here at 11FS? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a strategy director for customer experience here at 11FS. So I help our clients to really hopefully understand what problems they should be solving for their customers and how they can use those problems as the foundation for designing and implementing really awesome experiences in the digital world, uh, which basically just gives me permission to be constantly nosy and curious and to develop inappropriate crushes on fintechs from all around the world that are already delivering awesome experiences for their customers. So I'm sure we'll get to chat about some of those today. Nice. Badass in residence is what I would call you. But yeah. Oh, nice. I'll put that on LinkedIn. (laughs) Of course, we're always joined by some very special guests. First, making up a FinTech Insider debut, we've got Misha Esipov, the co-founder of Nova Credit. Welcome to the show, Misha. We'll we'll get into some news about Nova Credit in a bit, but can you give the audience a brief explainer of of Nova Credit? First of all, thanks for having me on the show. And and, and, uh, it's rare that someone pronounces my my name correctly, so I, I appreciate that. Yeah, happy to share a little bit about Nova Credit. I'm sure we'll get into it in a bit. But in a nutshell, there's over 300 million immigrants uh, around the world. Over 10 million are added uh, every year. And when they first uh, move to to a new country, uh, they struggle to access the local credit system. That means when they apply for a student loan or a credit card or an auto loan uh, or you know have some sort of crisis where uh, they need fu- access to funds and uh, and they simply can't access to them, they struggle to you know, really land on their feet. And that immigration journey becomes quite, quite challenging. And so Nova Credit uh, solves that problem. And the way that we do it is we allow consumers to use their own data to get access to financial services. So we are a, uh, the world's sort of first and only cross-border credit bureau, where we take uh, credit bureau data from one market to another. Uh, and in doing so, we allow an immigrant to go from being absolutely credit invisible to having you know, a, a representative credit history in their new country when they arrive. Cool, thank you. And also we've got a welcome return for Polly Jean Harrison, the features editor over at the FinTech Times. Welcome back, Polly, how are you doing? 
I am wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back again. It's been great to be here. Stoked to, to get into the news with you. All right, so let's get into it. All right, so our first story comes from AltFi. U.S. fintech Nova Credit expands into Europe to unlock opportunities for immigrants. So cross-border credit bureau Nova Credit is expanding across Europe, starting in the U.K. The San Francisco-founded fintech aims to unlock opportunities for people historically excluded from the credit system who cannot carry their credit history with them when they immigrate to other countries. Nova Credit will focus initially on the UK before expanding to the rest of Europe. According to Nova Credit, of the 10 million immigrants in the UK today, 3.5 million are relative newcomers with little to no UK credit history. These could be categorized as creditworthy borrowers based on their credit history in their country of origin. Um, so naturally, we're going to come to you, Misha, first uh, on this. Congrats on the expansion. Really, really exciting. Why is this a r- the right time for, uh, you know, wading into Europe right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been on the roadmap for, for quite some time. It's always been part of the, the company vision and, and, and ambition. Um, you know, we, we started here in, in the United States, been around for about five years. Uh, and, and the U.S. really is the largest recipient of, of immigrant flows around the world. Uh, but there are very large immigrant corridors uh, all around the world. Uh, and one of the largest is, you know, into uh, into the UK. And so if you, if you think about what we do, you know, we take data from around the world uh, and allow that data to be transferred or ported or moved from one country to another in service of people who move from those countries. So historically, you know, if you move from, you know, uh, India or Canada or Mexico to the United States, we could serve those corridors. Uh, and allow those those folks to be able to access financial services. And now, you know, uh, through this expansion into, into Europe, we're able to take access and all of those data points around the world and support migrant corridors destined uh, for for the UK. So it it really is a transformational uh, step for our business. It takes us from being a many to one uh, business uh, to being actually a many to many, uh, where you know anyone moving from anywhere to anywhere uh, will be able to really arrive. Uh, and have you know a complete credit profile move with them uh, as they move, um, and you know in terms of like why why now why is this the right time, you know the the need for a cross border credit bureau in Europe has has only accelerated. I think you know, I don't know if we'll get into it today, but with the news happening in in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine, um, as well as just you know frankly captive customers who have reached out to us over the years asking you know when are we coming to to London. Uh, it's been in the works for for quite some time, and we've got the team and resources to execute. That's really cool. Can you give us a little bit of an like you've touched on the people you serve, but a bit more of just a zoom in on on the personal impact, like the like real human impact that access to something like Nova Credit has on on your customers? Yeah, I mean, if you just picture yourself as uh, someone who who has to move from one country to to another, it's an it's an incredibly vulnerable period of transition, right? You have to, in most cases, learn a new language. Uh, retrain yourself professionally, learn about the new cultural norms. Uh, and then on top of that, the financial services sector makes it incredibly difficult for you to prove that you are who you say you are and prove that you actually are a good borrower. And it's not because you know the local banks and lenders don't want to serve you. It's because they've never had the data, the infrastructure, the tools to know who you are. Uh, and that's precisely the problem that we solve. So we are a, a B2B2C company. We enable some of the largest lenders in the world uh, including, you know, partners like American Express, including, you know, major telecom players like Verizon, including companies like SoFi, to use uh, d- data from around the world uh, to uh, help this consumer segment no longer be credit invisible. And when we do that, we're able to unlock the services that they need upon arrival. That's that's really cool. I mean, so also, like, I'm going to 
talk about, you know, American regulation for a second. So like recently the Fed is suing TransUnion, a credit bureau in the States and, you know, calling it unwilling or incapable of operating lawfully. I think that like, it, you know, a lot, of, a lot of traditional credit bureaus have been in hot water lately and, and have had lots of regulatory uh, run-ins. How much of Nova Credit's expansion is, is working with international regulators and credit, like other credit bureaus? What's that looked like? Yeah, so I mean, as you think about what our what our business model is, uh, you can you can kind of think about it as a as a three sided marketplace. Where uh, on one side we access credit bureau data from the leading credit bureaus in every major market. So we partner with companies like Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, CRIF, Credit Info, uh, and various uh, various other players. On our demand side, we work with both enterprises and consumers. Uh, so we work with major lenders, with telcos, with uh, property managers who, who offer apartment leases. And then the third side is really the consumer. And when we connect those three dots, we create a win-win-win. We help uh, suppliers that credit bureaus make more money. We enable lenders to win a new customer. And we enable consumers to win a product that they otherwise can't access. And in order to be able to do that, we have to work with regulators from, from all around the world and ensure that you know we're complying with all the four-letter words like GDPR, uh, and uh, ensuring that this information can actually move smoothly in a manner that is compliant. And we use consumer consent to do that. Um, Kate, I'm going to come to you um, regarding the, you know, the state of credit bureaus and uh, migration. What are your thoughts when you heard this story, with, you know, especially for Europe? Like, how, what, is, what, is this, what does this mean for Europe, a, a continent that, is, that has a ton of migration from, you know, Europeans and also out, like folks outside of Europe? Uh, what did you think when you first heard this story? Yeah, well, I mean, my first I mean, reaction was just, this is great. There's obviously been a huge need for this kind of offering for customers for ages. Personally, I've got, you know, my two best friends have both had gone through the experience of emigrating from the UK to other countries. You know, my friend moved from the UK to New York and had to start completely from scratch. Um, you know, as, as Misha has described, you know, she had a mortgage here in London and had a, it's a well-established credit history here and that just disappeared as soon as she moved and that's such a huge lost opportunity for all of those brands in the US where she moved to you know she was starting from scratch she had all of these new big financial outgoings in her life um, and this is like a hugely valuable time for someone to actually be able to partner with with customers to make a difference and help them make that transition so first and foremost I think this is really exciting um, for Europe yeah obviously not as stand out a migration use case as the US, where just the whole national identity is orientated around welcoming other countries. I think Europe has a slightly more complex relationship with migration. But as Misha alluded to, with the crisis in Ukraine, this is a hugely important time for us to think about how we support people that are moving, whether by choice or not by choice. We've not had a great track record in the UK of supporting you know, asylum seekers, there were stories last year about how you know, asylum seekers weren't able to access government support. We really need to try and put the tools in the hands of these people moving so that they can build their lives for themselves and, and not be caught up in you know, uh, bureaucratic processes when they need to be starting their lives and, and rebuilding their lives. So yeah, definitely a, a, great, a great development and really excited to see which, which markets you guys go to. Are you, are you able to give us a sneak peek, Misha, about where you're going to go? next after the UK or is it under wraps? Um, well, maybe actually just to, just to maybe respond to a few of the great points you made. I mean, as, as you think about like the demographic shift in, in, the, in the UK, five years ago, international migrant flows into the UK drove roughly 60% of the population growth in the UK. 
that means that there's more people moving into the United States than the actual net pop, like the natural born population uh, increase. And if you look at the blue world today, you know, uh, natural uh, birth rates are lower than they've been historically. And fast forward just 15, 10, 15 years, immigration is expected to drive over 100% of population growth, meaning the natural born population is declining. And the only way to keep your population, you know, the UK population up is through migration. So as you put yourself in the shoes of being a lender who, you know, needs to support its business and make long term investments, the only way to grow your share in the market is to really uh, find a way to differentiate and serve and retain this segment. So it really, you know, it really is core to the future of the United Kingdom. Uh, and I think that's true for, for Europe at large. I mean, intra-European migration is a huge uh, source of population movement uh, around the world. And so we're, you know, from a, from a company strategy perspective, we're starting with, with the major markets. Um, the UK will be our first step. You know, we will see kind of what the market reception will be to our announcement here in the next few weeks uh, and look to serve the major lenders uh, around Europe as best we can. Polly, what what are your thoughts around like uh, thoughtful financial inclusion? Like, for example, like fintech that is a credit bureau. Um, have have you seen other stories like this crop up uh, across Europe? Yeah, I mean, I feel like financial inclusion is just such a big topic consistently throughout the industry, and having these solutions to help you know people access finance are just super important. And with, I feel like we're seeing it in like, so many different places as well, not just necessarily in um, in this aspect of things, but like even like different banks and challenger banks I know have come up with some like different solutions to help uh, like thin file customers or underserved customers so I think this is just I, I agree with everything that's been said so far I think it's just fantastic and anything that helps people access finance is a good thing you know because I mean from my experience being a citizen of the UK you need a credit score for everything like literally you can't even go buy a mobile phone without a good credit score and I think it's just insane how much we rely on them and then when you get so yeah like you say when people come into the country and they don't have that then it really just shuts off access to so many different things that I think sometimes you wouldn't necessarily expect so yeah I, I just think it's it's brilliant anything and like this I hope there's going to be even more in the future just anything that helps financial inclusion and underserved underbank customers all good stuff in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, when it, when it comes to financial inclusion, I mean, our, our whole philosophy on this is it, it's all about enabling consumers to, at the point of need, so meaning in the middle of a credit application, whether they're applying for a place to live, a cell phone plan, a loan, to have the tools to paint a more complete picture of, of who they are, right? I think the credit bureaus, is, is, as much as they do have a bad, a bad rep in many cases, they do an incredible amount of good. Like, it's not an easy problem that they solve, but there are certainly cracks in uh, in the system, especially for people that are on ramping into credit, whether they be you know uh, emerging you know new new adults, whether they be new in our case new Americans or new Brits, people that are moving into countries, as well as people who've just like been out of the system for a very long time, and that is precisely where alternative data, uh, whether it be you know companies like ours that use cross border credit data or open banking providers, can really have an impact in allowing people to paint a more complete picture of who they are, and in parallel allow lenders to treat consumers more fairly and inclusively. Thank you. Um, and if you're looking for the ultimate intro course to lending credit scores and why it's been the cornerstone of banking for thousands of years, go check out our episode number four of Decoding Banks on YouTube. So let's move on to the next story. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Um, so this we picked this up at Forbes. Um, so Apple's plan to pump up Apple Card and Apple Pay and win the payments war. 
So Apple is reported to be launching an initiative codenamed Breakout to bring more financial services capabilities in-house. This would include payment processing, risk and fraud analysis, credit checks, and customer service. Apple's penetration and control in the consumer market is incredibly strong, but until recently, it has had little presence on the merchant side. Currently, Apple relies on third-party financial companies like Goldman Sachs for services related to the Apple Card and its own financing programs. The codenamed Breakout Project would see Apple pursue a platform business model to protect and grow its market position. Can Apple win the payments war? What do you think? I'm going to come to you, Polly. I think this uh, was a really interesting story, and I really loved the the Forbes Ron Shevlin article about it. I thought it was super snarky, as you know, his his take is the snark tank. I think Apple. It doesn't surprise me to see that Apple are doing this. Um, I think. From what we're seeing a lot in the industry, everyone is trying to be that four-cumbersing sort of financial services company. It's something that we're seeing so many different companies try to do. Klarna, for example, you know, they are no longer just the buy now, pay later payments company. They are becoming a full-stack financial services company operating in so many different aspects of the industry. Um, and so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me to see that Apple are doing this and trying to compete with, you know, the Googles, um, the Amazons and, and everything else a part of the industry. I will they win the payments war? I don't know. I feel like they'll they'll give it a pretty good go. I mean, so many people have iPhones, so many people have Apple products. It would make sense then to extend that into payments products. Like I was having a conversation the other day with my colleagues who all have Apple phones apart from me. And they, as you know, is often said, once you go Apple, you never go back because everything is just Apple. You know, your computer's Apple, your phone is Apple. So you there's a lot of loyalty with Apple products, which I think will translate into, you know, payments products and other financial services products that they come out with. So I feel like when it comes to, you know, the Gen Zs and the younger generations of the world, have they already won the battle? Maybe, because everyone will just be using it anyway. I think it'll be an interesting thing to see, especially as it as it goes forward. And as I suppose they've released more plans about this since there's not too much that we know about it so far. Kate? Where does this lie in the like what 11FS coins is like the banking battlefield? Where does this kind this kind of news lie? Well, I mean, yeah, we always have the the section of the banking battlefield which is focused on you know, the digital native businesses you know, that have always been operating in this way. You know, Apple definitely sit in that category. They've always designed products with you know, amazing experiences. Yes. Polly said, everything is connected. Everything is about kind of that whole ecosystem. So there's lots of components there that make Apple very well placed to be a, a real challenger in this space. I think it's very interesting kind of trying to work out, are they going to go after kind of that consumer market? Are they going to try and be the partner for businesses? Obviously, kind of their, their partnership with Adyen, you know, they're really moving into that space of trying to use the handsets as payment terminals. You know, that's going to be really interesting. You know, that's a space where you know, there's a lot of traffic already. You know, they're taking on, they're not just taking on old incumbents, you know, they're taking on the likes of, of Square. You know, Square are doing some really interesting things as well. You know, they've got a, their partnership with Google. So I think if they went into just the consumer space, I think they've, they've got a huge, you know, it's, it's for them to lose really. You know, they've got that huge market share in terms of the devices. They've got that huge loyalty, as Polly was saying. I think the, the merchant space and the business space is fascinating. I'm really, really intrigued to see what they do there. That's, I think, a bigger, a bigger challenge. Misha, do you think Apple can dominate the merchant space as much as they do the consumer space? I mean, I think 
Time will tell. Um, I think they've done a remarkable job with you. I mean, just looking at my own use of, of Apple Pay, uh, it's just, it is a, and then we'll, we'll get into the use of, of chips, but it's the closest thing to like a microchip in your hand is like you just take out your phone, which you have with you 24 seven, two taps and you're done. And, you know, I, I think as, as you think about what this move could mean for, for the industry, it's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a bold step to see them stepping into the alt data world. I mean, I don't know the credit kudos team particularly, well, but at the end of the day, they are an open banking platform that has spent many years standardizing, synthesizing, uh, aggregating open banking data and making sense of all of the insights or many of the insights that one can extract from it. And as you think about building a consumer lending business or a payments business, you know, to that one that can actually complement the traditional credit bureau ecosystem, which, you know, like I'm sure you all saw the, the headlines that Apple got hit with here with Apple Card when it was first getting um getting underway in terms of their underwriting practices and who was getting approved and who wasn't getting approved, the ability to bring in open banking data to complement uh, the gaps in the credit bureau system is really a, a differentiator for, for, for Apple. And being able to do that in-house, I think, can allow them to just build a, a better and more inclusive financial uh, system and payments experience. Misha mentioned the, the credit kudos acquisition. Polly, how, how significant is that acquisition to the future of Apple's strategy in Europe and, and, and beyond? Like, is, is it more, is, are, are they showing that it's more effective to buy rather than build something? I think it's interesting. I mean, I'm not super familiar on the whole situation in general, but I feel like everything's based on acquisition of partnerships in this industry. Like, that is where a lot of the thing come in. And obviously, Credit Kudos being in the open banking space, that is going to be super useful to Apple if they're trying to build this whole ecosystem. I guess... It depends, I suppose, on what is the end goal here. It's that it's it's the constant question. I think it's the constant sort of debate I guess I have with a lot of people in the industry when we talk about things like this. Is it better to build or to buy? And I don't know if there is a definitive answer to that. Maybe other people will have a definitive answer, but from sort of my point of view, it, it always depends on how you're trying to achieve something. And I guess with Apple, it feels like they're kind of gonna be going down a building route, at least from what I've read. Obviously, like I know they've purchased credit kudos, but I, it's a very interesting situation, one that I'm not completely... I don't know if anyone else has sort of more insights on this one, but it's just that it's an age-old debate, build or buy, build or buy. I mean, Kate, you touched on the... So, the, I mean, there's three options always, really, which is build, buy, or blend via partnerships. And and they their, their partnership with, with Adyen, as Kate mentioned, and, you know, with Goldman Sachs. So, Kate, are, is, is Apple kind of just like spreading their wings and like just using all the different strategies like what what do you think uh this is this is gonna result in with regards to like customer impact like at the end of the day it's really it's really fat again it's gonna sound like a cop-out but I, I don't think there is a definitive answer to this stage and that's why it's so fascinating right we're all trying to read between the lines and infer like trying to think about what is apple's long-term strategy um i think you know i started out my career looking at smartphones when they first kind of came into the market, looking at kind of how Apple moved into the market. And they always sat right at that premium end of the market and kind of wanted to be the aspirational brand that was harder to attain and harder to reach. And you can see that they've moved away from that now. They've kind of moved into that, you know, having the wider range of devices to get into the ecosystem is very easy. And now it feels like it's, you know, they've got that reach. And now it's really trying to think about how they own as much value as possible within the ecosystem they've created. So, yeah, I, I think it makes complete sense that they're trying to, they've, they've got to scale 
by leveraging partnerships, by going out with the likes of Goldman Sachs, maybe even this partnership with Adyen is is not in their eyes like a long, long term strategy. They can go out into the market, establish themselves, try out new things, and then once they're confident that that's a space they can own, then they can move into building that out in house so that they can own that and own all of the data. And for Apple, it's always not it's not never just about the money, it's always about the data, the experience, the ecosystem. So they can build all of that out themselves and own all of that value once they've ascertained that it's a part of the market that they're interested in. So yeah, I'm definitely not going to bet my house on on any final outcome, but it's fascinating to watch. And yeah, it's it's going to be crazy to see how people how people react. You know, obviously, every time Apple moves, everyone everyone tries to tries to keep up, even though they don't quite know where Apple's going. So. Misha, could could Apple eventually limit Apple's financial services to only Apple products? Like, you know, if they were to extend into all sorts of other fields, like, you know, people are speculating about them going to buy now, pay later. And do you think that's something that they would exclusively limit to Apple users? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it, the little I know about, you know, Apple Pay, that's their, Apple historically has always gone with more of a platform play where, you know, they allow, you know, a, a chase card or any, any card to operate through Apple Pay. I think, you know, you got you to be pro-consumer in the decisions that, that you make and whatever the consumer has a preference to use a particular card uh, or given the rewards or the brand or, or whatever it may be, uh, they want to be able to enable that and they, and they still benefit from it. In a BNPL kind of world, you could see why, you know, they may want to limit the number of options uh, because of a variety of user experience reasons and, and, and others, frankly. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm curious to see how, how this plays out. But as I think about like this, this deal and, and, and what went down, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's a really smart strategic move to uh, really vertically integrate into how they can underwrite into understanding open banking data and really get a a head start. And I think they, they accelerated their, their roadmap by a few raise, by a few years by doing this deal. Yeah. And they have deep pockets, right? So they, they can keep going on and on and on. Um, and we could keep going on and on. So let's uh, take a quick pause here. Uh, while you hear from our sponsors, we'll be back shortly. Let's face it. Cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK. So you can cut costs, fight fraud, and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. Do you like no BS fintech opinions without all of the bells and whistles? Well, we've got the newsletter just for you. Unfiltered runs every two weeks and you can get it beamed straight into your inbox. Just head to 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters to sign up now. You don't want to miss out. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. Nigerian fintech startup Kippa launches digital payments offering for African SMEs. So this is from Fintech Futures. Nigerian fintech startup Kippa has launched a new digital payments platform called Kippa Payments. The product is built to enable small and medium-sized enterprises in Africa to send and receive payments within the Kippa app. It is the second product launched by the firm since it was founded less than a year ago in June 2021. So Kipa says that the customers will now be able to transfer money, make bill payments, and send invoices containing embedded payment links for a small processing fee. It first launched a mobile bookkeeping solution to help businesses manage inventory, invoicing, and debt on the app, 
Uh, and now Kiba claims to have over 350,000 SMEs across Nigeria. So to find out more about Kipa, we reached out to Duke Izike Joseph, the co-founder and chief growth officer at Kipa, and we asked why launch another product so soon, and how big is the payments market in Nigeria? What we simply do at Kipa is mimic the behaviors of merchants and customers, and all of the the problems that exist with those offline behaviors, and try to bring that online. And what we saw constantly from, of course, observing the market of business owners that use Kipa, even down to having conversations with these business owners, we've realized that payments is still a bit fragmented for a lot of them. So getting payments from their customers, sending out payments to suppliers, being able to separate their, their business accounts from their personal accounts, these are all payment issues that customers have. And this product was one that solved that directly. The second thing is we were beginning to see a whole lot of you know transactions that were happening. It was a wave, a wave of transactions now happening digitally. And we believe that from our merchants on Kipa, we believe that we could capture that on the app itself. To be honest, digital payments in Nigeria is ever booming. But I think as of 2019, there were about 456 million active users who use payments in Africa. And the market is valued at somewhere around $46 billion. And we think that this is huge enough for the African market. And we really just want to take a slice of that in Nigeria. Awesome. So, Polly, I'm going to come to you. Is, is Nigeria now Africa's hottest fintech hub? Like, we're hearing news and stories like this almost on a weekly basis. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. And I would almost say that, yeah, it is. Um, we did actually at the Fintech Times, we did a report last year. Uh, basically, it was the state of fintech in Middle East and Africa. And we looked at sort of 20 countries um, across those regions just to sort of examine what fintech looked like in those places. And we found Nigeria at the time was sort of like an emerging market. You know, there was, a, there was a fintech industry there, but it was still emerging, still finding its feet. Fast forward to now, and I feel like it's just grown so much since then. It's just unbelievable. And like um, Duke was saying in, when he was speaking, the payments industry in Nigeria is huge. Um, and digital payments just keeps going and going and going. And that is insane. And I think the venture capital as well in Nigeria, I think something like over a billion dollars in venture capital has been attracted from places like Silicon Valley and, and everywhere else. So I think the fintech industry in Nigeria is just crazy and just insane. And absolutely, definitely, it's more than emerging now. It is very much a rising star of the fintech industry. And I think there's even much more to go because, I mean, Nigeria is, is still quite an untapped market when it comes to certain things, you know, like in terms of, again, talking about financial inclusion, there's still a lot of underserved customers there. So I think we're just going to see even more innovation coming and even more fintechs coming. So it's super exciting to watch. It's definitely one of the more um, more interesting and exciting places, I think, for fintech at the moment. Misha, during the break, uh, when we were not recording, uh, we touched we touched on how Nova Credit actually is serving the like immigrants uh, in the UK-Nigeria corridor. Was Nigeria a strategic decision with regards to you guys um, hooking up to the credit bureaus over there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Nigeria has a population of over 200 million people. It's one of the largest countries in the world. It's expected to be the, one of the largest GDP contributors in, in the world in terms of, of growth. Its population growth is, you know, outpacing much of, uh, you know, most developed, almost all developed markets. And so Nigeria has been a priority for us for, for a long time. I think we first 
uh, linked up with one of the local credit bureaus there probably like three years ago to serve the Nigeria to the U.S. corridor, which is, you know, a top, certainly a top 10, maybe a top five within the student segment uh, in terms of its, its size and impact. And, you know, as we think about migrant flows into the U.K., being able to serve Nigeria to, to the UK and also Kenya to the UK, those are two capabilities that, that we can bring to the table. So I, I think like this Kipa has been framed as, as you know, B2B, you know, businesses to, to Kipa to SMEs. But Africa is such a like, like me sitting in Kenya right now, like I know for a fact that like almost everyone I know is an SME. Like there's just so much entrepreneurialism that's going on across the continent. And, you know, African fintechs seem to be more likely to to offer all products to all people. Um, so Kate, like our African fintechs looking at like the, the success of M-Pesa and, and Kipa, for example, and thinking that they, they too could become super apps that, that serve everyone. I mean, I think there's definitely the sense that the opportunity in this part of the world is, is huge, as, as you know, Isha was saying, Holly was saying. Obviously, the population growth, the lack of or seeming lack of really established brands, obviously M-Pesa is the flagship um, and I know you've got strong strong opinions on on Impesa Guerra so I won't <laughs> I'll let you let you come into those but yeah I think it's I think there's a, a an interesting in some ways it, it seems a bit simplistic you know it's just there's a huge population therefore they must need XYZ products and I think there is a bit of a risk that um, brands just see it in that's in that way and just try and port products from other parts of the world into these markets and just assume that because there's a large population that's you know, by our standards, unbanked, that there's just going to be huge growth. And I don't think it's that simple. Um, actually, we know that there's a very just different financial ecosystems in these countries. You know, people use you know, mobile phone credit. You know, obviously, Impesa is the obvious example, but people use mobile phone credit as a currency in a way that doesn't wouldn't really make sense to a lot of people in Western markets, but it, it makes sense in those markets. Um, I spoke to some really interesting companies last year that are actually trying to build you know, crypto payment rails between mobile phone credit um, and, and and crypto. So I think traditional payments maybe has an opportunity in, in these parts of the world, but maybe it's even going to get leapfrogged and, and we're going to see more exciting things to come than, than just standard payments. Definitely will be leapfrogged. I can guarantee that because, you know, adoption of alternative financial services like crypto, for example, has exploded in Nigeria. I think Nigeria is leading the world like in terms of P2P payments uh, in crypto, you know, like we're already seeing so many unicorns pop up. I, I think I saw some infographic a while ago that was like saying that that um, it, on average, it takes Nigerian startups on average, like three years to become a unicorn versus I think in, in America in all of history, I guess it's, it, takes, it takes like double that time. Um, so there's been explosive, explosive growth and, you know, massive population large like largely underserved by traditional finance um you know we've got companies like flutterwave and interswitch and uh who who are you know serving so like reaching so many people um i think that the definitely more unicorns to come uh in in the future and i think that, like personally i i'm keeping a very close eye on what's happening across the continent um it's quite exciting uh, anyone else have any other thoughts before we move on to the next story i suppose just as a counterbalance to that i mean obviously we talk about the differences in this part of the world and there obviously are huge differences but I thought it was interesting when you look at Keeper's strategy you know they've gone to market initially with a bookkeeping business sort of registration service now they're moving to payments you know that actually feels quite familiar that's a market or that's a model that we've seen a lot of other SME challenges take in other markets so um, I'm intrigued to see 
how they how they roll that out further? Do they kind of follow that same model as um, you know the likes of Tide, for example, have done in the UK? Um, or are, you know, what are they going to do that's going to differentiate and make sure that they are super localized to the needs of, of Nigerian SMEs? Um, because yeah, I guess parts of their their business strategy do feel strangely familiar, and and I wasn't expecting that necessarily. Yeah, that's that's a good sh- yeah good shout. I, strangely familiar, you know what what works works. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll keep an eye on, on the space. Let's move on to the next story. So the Bank of England's fintech chief leaves for digital asset platform Fireblocks. So this is from The Block. The Bank of England's head of fintech, Varun Paul, has announced that he is leaving the central bank and moving to the digital asset space. So Paul is set to join Fireblocks, a digital asset custody transfer and settlement platform. Following a $550 million Series E funding round earlier this year, the firm is worth $8 billion and is the highest value digital asset infrastructure provider in the world. So while Paul has been at the central bank for 16 years, he's only been in this most recent role as head of fintech hub for just over a year. The move comes on the back of the UK Treasury recently announcing plans to turn Britain into a global crypto assets hub. Like, Dude's been in this role for a year and is already being poached by crypto firms. Kate, what does this mean for the ecosystem? What, is, what does this mean for, you know, talent in the ecosystem uh, in the UK? Yeah, well, there's obviously a lot of conversation at the moment about whether fintech has has a, an issue of brain drain, right? And obviously we've, we've got used to fintech being the darling of the UK tech scene, obviously lots of tech scene, lots of markets around the world, and it being a very attractive space for talented individuals to come and work in. Um, yeah, I guess there's a concern that that's, that's not the case anymore and that you know, the talent is going to move over to crypto. And we know how essential talent is to helping these businesses to grow and scale efficiently. You, know, you need people that can move fast and, and build smart stuff. So, you know, those people are in demand and they're highly valuable and I guess they know their worth and they want to work in crypto is is, is the hypothesis. Um, I think we've seen a couple of senior figures from, from Monzo, Revolut, Railsbank, you know, move. So yeah, I think lots of people say, you know, watch watch the hires and certainly if you're watching the hires, there's some interesting stuff going on. I feel like it's anecdotal. I, I, a part of me is like, yes, I'm seeing all these these hires move. Um, but like, Polly, are you seeing like trends of like actual this this exodus into Web three and crypto, like what what are you seeing in in what what's crossing your desk? I mean, half of me thinks that people are kind of reading a bit too much into it, but maybe that's a, a smaller half. I don't know. I feel like crypto has always been the trendy thing, hasn't it? Like, and especially now with like metaverse and Web three, that is the super trendy, exciting thing that people want to know about. And I think if you look from sort of like the general public consumer point of view. Crypto is kind of the space that they understand. Like when I tell people I work in fintech, the first thing that they say is, oh, Bitcoin. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, everything else as well. So I think, I guess we can sort of look there and see, okay, so crypto is trendy. And I think another part of it is also that crypto still kind of has a way to go in terms of, you know, its development, what is its actual role in everyday life going to be? You know, we keep hearing different uh, countries are now accepting, you know, crypto as legal tender, or at least looking into it, the role of CBDCs and how many countries are looking into that as a possibility. So I think there's still a lot of space to go in crypto. Whereas if you look at fintech, the fintech industry is I come of age, I think, in the past couple of years. And though it's it's by no means, you know, 
old news and super established. I think crypto has just emerged as kind of the more exciting place to be, especially when you think of how much volatility that goes alongside crypto that people are trying to start to at least work on. So yeah, it kind of does make sense. But then going back to the whole people are looking too much into it, like people are just moving around, it's just, you know, new jobs. That's every fact of life, maybe. I'm not sure. We felt this this brain drain as well. I mean, as a company, we felt that in terms of, you know, losing a few folks who've gone out to start their own crypto businesses. I think we've had about a dozen companies start out of Nova Credit um, since inception. And we've also feel it in, in the job market where, you know, we're trying to go out and recruit some amazing players who, you know, uh, have offers in the crypto space. And some of those offers, especially for technical talent, are just, you know, outside of the bands of, of what a company of our, of our stage can really uh, can really do. You know, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a bold career move, but like I, I, I respect it because you gotta, you're kind of betting on, on a, an overall wave um, continuing and on a wave that I, I agree with, with Polly, it's still relatively early in its, uh, in its development. Uh, and you're also betting that, you know, the team or the project that you're working on is going to be one that can actually ride that wave. And so it's, it's a bold bet. And for some, it may, it may pay out incredibly well. And, and, and for others, uh, you know, you'll learn a lot about an ecosystem and be able to find, you know, the right wave to surf or, or whatever the right analogy is here. Kate, I'm going to come to you with regards to Fireblocks and how big they are in the ecosystem, because like I like this move, I immediately thought of like, if I was to make a move like that, how would I explain it to my parents? Um, I'd be like, well, it's a company that does this. And uh, like, you know, it's, it's getting more and more obscure. But how big are Fireblocks? How is how is how, how uh, Paul, Evan Paul, explained this to, to his family? Well, I mean, they are they are huge. You know, they raised five hundred fifty million dollars in their Series E, as we talked about. Um, you know, that, that valuation is is insane. Um, and they serve over eight hundred financial institutions. So, you know, they transfer over two trillion dollars of digital assets. Um, and so, it's it, the the scale of it within the space is huge. How you explain it to your parents, I think is, I mean, I think that's challenging. I didn't realize. My dad, my parents worked for IBM, and I didn't realize my dad was an accountant until I was about sixteen. So I just think parents don't don't do very good jobs at explaining uh, what they do to, to their kids or, or kids to their parents. So I, I suspect he's probably got if he's been at the Bank of England for sixteen years and now he's moving into the world of crypto. I suspect he's probably got bigger adjustment challenges than explaining it to his parents. So that's <laughs> going to be a whole shift in day-to-day culture, ways of working, um, I suspect. What does a crypto company stand to gain from a new hire with 16 years at the Bank of England? Um, like, what's the appeal for them? I mean, my guess would be, you know, the UK government have announced that they are planning to to move into uh, regulate stablecoins. You know, they're obviously looking to become, I think they've described the aspiration as becoming like a global crypto asset hub. So the government is going to get involved in this space. I guess players of the scale of Fireblocks will need to have people on the inside who can help them navigate that new relationship, can help them go through this transitionary phase of, of the government trying to get trying to get involved. You know, precisely how they'll get involved, we'll, we'll, we'll find out. I think Rishi Sunak wanted the Treasury or the, the Royal Mint to create an NFT or something, which sounded a little bit tokenistic, but that wasn't meant to be a pun. Um, but but uh, yeah, um, <laughs> but we're going to see you know, greater crossing between the world of crypto and the world of government. So I think, I suspect he'll I'd be a huge value add to them in helping navigate that. Polly, will, will the Bank of England backtrack on some of their heinous comments 
previously made over crypto. So like back, uh, the governor of the Bank of England said in 2021 that if you buy Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Ethereum, and or any other digital currency, you should be prepared to lose all your money. Um, do you think that, uh, that will will Paul's uh, decision to leave um, influence any change of heart within the Bank of England? I don't necessarily it'll be his decision to leave, but I think it'll just be the general view of like the wider world that maybe would influence them backtracking or perhaps revising their opinion obviously like with the the Khalifa review last year and then the innovate finance uh, letter of inaction on that review i think that's sort of a major thing and looking into like cbdc's and stuff i think there will be a change of opinion on crypto but i i do think perhaps that they'll keep their their kind of viewpoint on you know approach things carefully and i think that's a good viewpoint on crypto to have just in general you know know what you're doing before you go in and and do things at risk i guess absolutely all right let's move on to the next segment of the show so this is the part of the show where we cover stories we didn't have time uh, to talk about in the main show so they but they still do deserve a shout out so kate do you want to get us started yeah absolutely so our first story here comes from cnn Russia has defaulted on its foreign debt, says S&P. So Russia has defaulted on its foreign debt because it offered bondholders payments in rubles, not dollars. According to credit ratings agency S&P, Russia attempted to pay in rubles for dollar-denominated bonds that matured on the 4th of April. Um, the agency said that this amounted to a selective default because investors are unlikely to be able to convert the rubles into dollars equivalent to the originally due amounts. Moscow has a grace period of 30 days to make the payments of capital and interest, but S&P said it doesn't expect it will convert them into dollars given the Western sanctions. Um, Russia can't access roughly $315 billion of its foreign currency reserves as a result of Western sanctions imposed after the invasion of Ukraine. A full foreign currency default would be Russia's first in more than 100 years. Um, Russia's now unsurprisingly planning legal action. So I suppose... It's important to note this isn't a full default. It's you know, a selective default is when an entity has defaulted on a, a specific obligation, but not its entire debt. So it's not the worst it could be, but it's still a pretty big deal, both for Russia itself and for the bondholders. So it'll be fascinating to see the ripple effects throughout the whole financial global system if the grace period passes and we don't find a resolution for this, which is unlikely given the ongoing sanctions. I'm a history nerd at heart, and the last time that Russia was in this situation was when the Bolsheviks under Lenin repudiated the bonds of the Tsarist government that they'd just displaced. So, yeah, maybe that helps give a sense of the scale of it. You know, it's we're really in the midst of a historic series of events here. We've not really seen a kind of financial war of this scale. Um, so it's, it's massive. Thanks for the, the history tidbit. That's really good to know. All right. Um, next story. Meta is reportedly making Zuckbucks. So Facebook's financial arm has been exploring the creation of a virtual currency for the metaverse which employees internally have dubbed Zuckbucks, according to several several sources. This is unlikely to be a cryptocurrency based on the blockchain, um, but instead Meta is leaning toward an in-app token that will, that will be centrally controlled by the company, similar to those using gaming apps such as Robux uh, currency in the popular Roblox game. In the same week, HSBC has launched a Metaverse investment fund. Kaisha Imagine enters the Metaverse with a virtual space and MasterCard and has listed trademarks in the metaverse. 
This is insane. I mean, like everyone entering the metaverse, I think Jamie Dimon, there's like a big poster of him in the JP Morgan branch in the metaverse. I, it's, it's, it's pretty insane that, you know, of course, meta are entering that space, duh. But like Zuckbucks, you know, I wonder what lessons they're taking from what happened with Libra into this venture. You know, I've mentioned Roblox and Robux, a very, very, you know, robust um, economy within the game. I wonder if Facebook is, is trying to tap into that. So if, if you do want to hear uh, our own delve into all things meta, go check out our recent bonus episode of Fintech Insider, in which was recorded with David and Jason entirely in the metaverse. Kate? Yeah, I definitely recommend that. It's, it's a very, very interesting, but quite bizarre watch. Um, and finally, in this in this section, our last story is from the Evening Standard. So UK pay falls for the second month in a row as cost of living bites. So wages have fallen in real terms for the second month in a row in the UK as the cost of living crunch gathers pace. Pay growth accelerated from 3.8% in January, but is failing to keep pace with rapidly accelerating inflation. Figures from the Office for National Statistics have shown. So prices rose by 5.5% in January and inflation reached 6.2% in February. The Bank of England expects inflation to peak at over 8% later this year, and some city forecasting 10% inflation could be possible. The cost of living crunch is only set to intensify as the data doesn't actually capture the increase in the energy price cap this month, nor the impact of supply chain disruption and soaring energy prices due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, so yeah, lots of lots of numbers and percentages, but really things feel pretty pretty bleak at the moment. We know that these economic downturns have the biggest impact on those with the lowest financial resilience to start off with. You know, the kinds of customers that many traditional financial business models aren't particularly interested in. So Actually, I think this could be a really transformative time for fintech. It's an opportunity for new financial brands to really be there and to offer tangible help to customers, you know, to forge deep customer relationships at a time when maybe other brands aren't interested. Um, it's not going to be enough to just have a smooth interface. You need to be able to actually show people that you're helping them to navigate you know, them, their families, their businesses to navigate this crisis. And it, it's a huge crisis. We haven't seen uh, these kinds of pressures on on household budget since World War II. So it's it's a it's a difficult time. Really difficult. All right. So let's bring everyone back for the final story of the week. A little bit lighter. Uh, it's our and finally story. So the microchip implants that let you pay with your hand. Uh, so British Polish firm Walletmore last year became the first company to commercially sell microchip implants for NFC payments. Walletmore's chip weighs less than a gram and is a little bigger than a grain of rice. And it's implanted in the back of the hand between the thumb and the forefinger. It consists of tiny microchip and an antenna encased in bipolymer, a naturally sourced material similar to plastic. Founder Wojtek Paprota says the implant can be used to pay for a drink on the beach in Rio, a coffee in New York, a haircut in Paris, and at your local grocery store. So the founder uh, also adds that it is entirely safe and has regulatory approval. It works immediately after being implanted and will stay firmly in place. It also doesn't require any battery or power source. The firm says it has now sold more than 500 chips uh, to customers. So we, we asked our FinTech Insider audience on Twitter, would you do it? So about 13% of, of respondents said, get me chipped. About 87% of the respondents said, hell no, no thank you. Anyone on the panel uh, interested in getting chipped? I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I think obviously it sounds initially, all these things initially sound mad, but, you know, 
the way that we pay for things has shifted huge. I mean, if we'd looked back 10 years ago, would you have thought that we'd be sat there just tapping our watches on, uh, you know, the Oyster Card barriers in, in the London Underground? Maybe not. But yeah, I think I'd, I'd want to understand how accurate it is. You know, I already have enough drama, like accidentally doing contactless payments with with my phone, let alone if it's just in your hand. So I wouldn't want to just be accidentally paying for things left, right and centre. So I'd, I'd be interested to see see how that works. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to learn more about it. I think my instinct right now is probably not not yet. I don't I don't think the upside and, and the utility quite outweighs the the downside. But I don't know, as I think about the value, there's like the, the allure of, of having a, a microchip in your hand um, and being able to talk about it and like be at the cutting edge. And for certain people, like that is probably reason enough to do it. And then there's the actual utility of, of the implant, which as I understand it right now is, is, is payments. Uh, which is, you know, pretty cool and potentially something in like the key opening fob uh, world. I think like this, you know, the switch or the the benefit of going from a two click uh, on your iPhone to, you know, swiping your hand. I don't really see much of the utility there. We kind of have our phones with us at all at all times um, in a world where like this implant can do a lot more than just those two things. It can help you communicate. It can help you do other things and potentially start to replace the phone. Like that, that world, I think the value prop starts to feel a lot more compelling, but I think we're still a ways out, a ways away. Polly, are you ready to get chipped? Uh, I'm weirdly squeamish about things like this. I mean, there was a scene in a movie where they all had like phones in their hands and that, oh, it makes me feel all funny. So I guess uh, maybe, I mean, I used to pay for my lunch at school with my fingerprint. So I suppose this isn't a million miles away from, from that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean... Maybe, probably not. I don't know. There's just something about a, a microchip in your hand that just immediately makes me go, no, thank you. Okay, I mean, I was going to say, you know, as the resident Gen Z, um, you know, close to the Gen Z world, like maybe th- that generation would be more more open to to payments like this and, and using these kinds of applications. I guess it's cool, you know. I mean, I I, I accept my position as, as the token younger person being sort of a... A lower millennial, higher Gen Z sort of thing. I, it is cool, and I can imagine. I can totally imagine like people going to like the supermarket and just like waving your hand over the the reader, and that be like, "Oh man, what are you doing? Oh, there's a microchip in my hand. Don't you have one?" But yeah, I mean, I guess like um, like you were saying, you know, it's this. Everything sounds weird until you do it, and it becomes popular. So yeah, I guess it would make sense that microchips are the next next way to go. Thanks. It's ultimately all about convenience, right? Like, I mean, if if you mm. can if you can make things as as easy as possible, and I suppose to Misha's point, like, it's not just about like a single experience; it's about how everything connects and then that, that wider ecosystem now. So, yeah, I think if this had come in before the the smartphone ecosystem had developed, it might have been like an easier transition. But yeah, I wonder if the people who are sort of just fundamentally skeptical about it don't kind of appreciate some of the things that already happen in the world. Like, you know, people already have contraceptive implants. People already have, you know, all sorts of things that we put into our bodies to make our lives more manageable and more convenient. So um, I th- I guess, yeah, it's it's a big step, but maybe it's not such a huge leap as, as you might think. Yeah. I mean, we, we chip our pets, right? But uh, enough chippery. Uh, we're coming to the end of the show that wraps this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out more about you, Kate? Um, so you can find me or on LinkedIn at Kate Moody or on Twitter at K8Moody. Brilliant. Polly Jean? You can head over to the Fintech Times website, fintechtimes.com, or you can find me on Twitter at opollyjean. Brilliant. And Misha? 
uh, on LinkedIn, uh, Misha Esbob, or just, just shoot me an email, Misha at NovaCredit.com. Cool. And as for me, you can find me at 11FS.com, also bumping around on Twitter at NotGuera. Um, thank you for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11FS. Thank you so much and goodbye. Goodbye.